If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. My wife just leaned over. She said, hey, it's only 11 verses. This will be easy. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Revelation 10, we continue our study through this amazing book. Have you ever used the phrase to yourself, what to do, what to do? Sometimes maybe you're at home and you're bored. And so you ponder, what to do? What do I do with myself? Or maybe it's the weekend or some other time and you have found that you've got some time on your hands and there's a list of things in your head or maybe you've got them written down. Some things you'd like to get to. And so you're pondering to yourself with this bit of time that you have, what to do? What to do? What do I spend this time doing? And I'm going to suggest this morning that maybe that's the question that is pressing upon us when we come to Revelation chapter 10. If you remember, when we looked at Revelation chapter 6, it was the six seals that were upon that scroll and Jesus was removing those seals and his plans for the age were being carried out. And we came to the sixth seal, in the end of chapter 6, and a question was asked, in light of the second coming of Jesus, and in light of the wrath of God to come, who can stand? And in chapter 7, we got the answer. It was a bit of an interlude, if you will. Seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And then we get this interlude of chapter 7 before the breaking of the seventh seal. And it was an answer to the question, who can stand in light of the coming wrath of God? And the answer was that those who are connected to Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we began to see the trumpet judgments. Trumpet one, two, three, four, five, and six. And now before the seventh trumpet blows, we get another interlude. And we don't get a specific question that's being asked, but I think maybe in light of, if you will, the answer that we get in chapters 10 and 11, the question for you and for me is not who can stand in light of the coming wrath, but what to do in light of the revelation of God and the truths that we have seen. What to do, people of God? What is it that you and I are to be about during this period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus? what to do. I think chapter 10, 11, get to the answer. We begin in verse 1 and simply say, it won't be long. You've heard me say before that, that for preachers, it's easy to use the letter P, you know, in putting together your sermon. P is the easiest one to use. I'm going to use the letter I today. I'm going to get lots of eyes this morning. 
Let's look first in verse 1, and we're going to see what John saw and what he heard. And first thing that he saw was an impressive emissary, one who has been sent from God. I saw another strong or mighty angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, a scroll, which was open. This fellow is quite impressive. Some wonder, in light of how he's described, if indeed this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And some wonderful commentators would say yes. He's coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And we know that Jesus is going to return in the clouds. He has a rainbow upon his head. And we'll remember from chapter 4. That vision of Almighty God surrounded with a rainbow. So the connection made that maybe this is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ and the rainbow upon his head points to his deity just as the Father. His face was like the sun. That points back to Revelation chapter 1 and that image of the risen, exalted Jesus whose face shone like the sun. His feet Like pillars of fire, you'll remember the vision of chapter 1. He had feet like burnished bronze. And he had in his hand a little scroll. And there's debate. Is this the same scroll of chapter 5? Is this a different one? But I'm with those who say, you know, this is probably not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never described as an angel, an angelos. So I think this is, this is a, a mighty angel. But he is described in such a way that he comes with God's authority. He's an emissary coming from God on mission for God with the authority of God. And we're about to hear him say something profound. And I think maybe verse 1 and into verse 2, the one thing we're meant to, to feel with the impressive language used here and the connection made to this is a mighty angel sent from heaven, from God on mission for God with the authority of God, that what he's about to say, we are meant to listen to. We're meant to heed and take seriously what this mighty angel is about to say. Is this the same scroll from chapter 5? Some say yes, some say no. I'd like to think that maybe indeed it is. It's It's the scroll that has been opened up by Jesus Christ. It's the scroll that describes his... New Testament scholar Beale writes, it's all of sacred history, especially from the cross to the new creation. 
It's God's plans of judgment and redemption being played out from the time of Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven all the way up until his coming to bring judgment upon his enemies, vindication to his people, and to establish a new heavens and new earth from which, over which he will reign forever and forever. So that's the impressive emissary, now his imposing stance. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. He comes from heaven and he puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. This is an impressive mighty angel and this is an imposing stance. It seems to, to mean what what I'm coming to declare has implications for everyone. He's about to point out that God is the creator of heaven, the creator of the sea, and the creator of land. There's nothing outside the cosmic reach of our great God. And what he has to say has implications for everything and everyone. Now, his immense cry. He cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. How loud is that? Human lions can be heard up to five miles away. I've never been downtown when the lion at the zoo roars, but I hear that you can hear it when he does his thing. When a lion roars, it's very loud and quite scary, especially for the lion's enemies. It's authoritative, it's powerful, and in many ways it might mean everyone else be quiet and listen to what I have to say. Here's a small, terrible illustration, all right? Take it for what it's worth. I played quarterback when I was in high school and in college. And being the quarterback of the offense, you, you have a bit of authority, especially when you walk into the huddle. It's pretty neat. Everybody else is supposed to shut up and listen to you. And sometimes, most of the time, guys will do a play, you know, and it... And they'll come back, and they're generally kind of quiet, and they're waiting for you to call the next play. But sometimes things happen out there in the game, and they come back mad. Mad because I didn't throw the ball to them. They thought they were open. Hey, Mitt, go on, you know, I was open. Mad at each other because somebody missed a block or didn't help on a particular deal. Mad at the other guys because down at the bottom of the pile they got spit on or whatever it might be, and they are not so quiet. And as a quarterback, you step into the huddle and you're like, all right, guys, listen up. And, and then finally you get to roar. Hey! And then guess everybody shuts up. It's kind of neat. It's kind of neat. Hey, listen! We've got to call the next play and here we go. Well, this mighty angel roars with a loud voice as when a lion roars. It's loud, it's impressive. It's authoritative, 
fearful. Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. Amos 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. And from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherds' pasture grounds mourn. And the summit of Carmel dries up. Next is an interesting aside. He's about to describe something for just a moment, and then he's going to get back to what what this mighty angel who has just taken his imposing stance with this immense cry, what he's about to say. But but before he gets there, there, there's this interesting aside. And, And when the angel had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, John says, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. It's interesting. The mighty angel, in in this vision, as John is seeing, the mighty angel roars, and then seven thunderclaps respond. What John sees and what he hears, he he dutifully begins to write it down. There are seven seals and seven trumpets, and we know then that seven bowls are coming. Here are seven thunders. And yet, he's told no. Don't write these. It's interesting. Most believe that maybe this is just a reminder to us all that we can't know everything that God is up to. The secret things belong to the Lord our He has been pleased to reveal much to us. And we do our best to interpret and to understand what he has revealed. But even when we do our very, very best, and even when we're getting really, really close to understanding what God has revealed to us, there's still some of it that he keeps secret from us. It's interesting, isn't it? Because some of us, in the tradition maybe that we have been a part of, we love to to put it all out on a piece of paper, exactly how things are going to go. And sometimes we can get very, very confident about that. I know exactly how things are going to go. You know, and we might draw out on our line the the seven seals, and, and then we might put in there the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls and, and, and this is when this is going to happen and then this is when that's going to happen. And it's interesting. We never put in the thunders. Maybe, maybe above all of our prophecy charts, we ought to just put the seven thunders <laughs> to remind us 
that God hasn't revealed everything to us. Some of this he is keeping to himself. It reminds me, I've quoted often, in, in the light of the trials that you and I go through, what William Cooper wrote, but I think it even applies here. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Way down deep in the darkness where we can't see, God is up to something good. His purposes. And we trust him. Abused Fanning, one of my profs at Dallas Seminary, it's always a salutary thing for proud humans to be reminded of their limitations and to leave some matters to a trustworthy God. Well, now what I'm calling the imminent declaration. Verse 5. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Imagine what John is seeing here. This angel lifts his hand, and he, and he makes an oath. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. Make no mistake, obviously, the worldview of the Bible is that there is a God, and he's the one who spoke all things into existence. Heavens, the sea, the dry land, all things. And what did he declare? That there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This angel, this mighty angel is saying, it won't be long. The seventh angel is about to blow the seventh trumpet. And just as we came to the end of the seals with the second coming of Jesus, the blowing of this seventh trumpet, let me show you what it is. Look one page over in chapter 11, verse 15. After the interlude is described in chapters 10 and 11 through verse 14, now we get this third woe. You'll remember that from last week. And now the seventh angel is going to blow the seventh trumpet. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I often say that's my favorite verse in all the book of Revelation. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. One day Jesus Christ is going to return, 
and the kingdoms of this world who have had their way will give way to the kingdom of Christ. And he will establish a new heavens and a new earth and reign forevermore. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Well, this angel says it won't be long. The mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, don't wait any longer. Turn to Him for the forgiveness of your sins that you might be reconciled to God and made one of his children the object of his eternal love and the possessor of eternal life. Time is almost done. And those of us who believe it's a time to rejoice as I studied this this week, I couldn't help but think of the old song. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. We are going to see the king. It won't be long when all of God's promises and predictions and prophecies will be fulfilled. Well, verse 8. What are we to do? What to do? Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go take the book, the scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So he's told to approach the angel, the mighty angel, and take the scroll from him. Verse 9, so I went to the angel, telling him to give me the, the little book, the scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. 
And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. They said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. A couple more eyes for you. What to do? Ingest the word. Inform the peoples. Take the revelation of God and ingest it, eat it, consume it. This same thing was told to the prophet Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read it to you. Now you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Many believe that in chapter 10, we are being reminded of what we're to be about during these days. That in this vision, John is reminded again, impressed again, that God's purposes are ripening fast and that it won't be long before all of his promises come to fruition in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that he sees and is told to take the scroll and, and, and to eat it, to ingest its message, and then to prophesy again that in this vision we are being reminded of what we are to be about. Indeed, the word of God, as you and I take it in, is sweet as honey. David said the same, didn't he? In Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much pure gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. David said, the word of God, the revelation from God is sweeter to me than honey. The psalmist in Psalm 19, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And I think all of us 
can give testimony to the same. That the word of God is so sweet in its revelation to us of a great and glorious and gracious God. And to all of his incredible promises that he makes to sinners like you and me. It's just sweet to the taste. And sometimes we find ourselves getting so busy and all the noise that surrounds us drowns out the word of God. And drowns out time that we spend in the word of God. But when we come to our senses and we take that time again to go back to the word of God, we go, why did I ever let this time get pushed aside? It's such sweet revelation from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us read the Bible. But we take this message about what is coming. And while it is sweet to our taste, it also makes our stomach bitter. Why is that? It's the message of judgment to come. And efforts to cleanse the Bible of such a message just are fall in vain. It's just there. Play with it and tweak it all you want. Jesus talked about a coming judgment more than he really talked about anything else, seemingly. Paul talked often about a day of wrath that is to come. And we've already seen it and we're not even halfway through. But over and over and over again we have seen judgment is coming. Salvation to those who believe. Judgment and wrath to those who continue to say no. And that is bitter. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, said just this week, in reality, there is no more important question than this. Who is Jesus Christ? On the day of judgment, we will not be defined by our relationship. On the day of judgment, we will not be defined, did I miss, by our relationship to Christ. We, we will be defined, sorry. On the day of judgment, we will be defined by our relationship to Christ. We will meet him either as Savior or we will meet him as judge. Verse 11. They said to me, you must prophesy again. What to do? What are you and I to do? What are we to be about? Prophesying again. Speaking again. Informing again. 
concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. If I were to ask you a trivia question, how many times in the book of Revelation do we see that phrase or similar ones to it? Peoples and nations, tongues and kings. And gave you one guess, what would you say? Right? Remember that? I know it's been a long time. We took a break from Revelation. So many things, seven times over, seven times over. This is one of those. This phrase or phrases like it, seven times in the book. Sometimes in positive light, right? That this gospel message has gone out to all the people's tongues, nations of the world, and people from all over have trusted in Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 7, an innumerable number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are standing before the throne because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. At other times, the phrase is used in, 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 in negative contexts. That the judgment of God will fall upon peoples, nations, tongues, kings, and the like. You and I are to prophesy again. Prophets in the scriptures certainly often had a predictive ministry as the Holy Spirit of God used them to foretell what was to come. They did that some, no doubt about it, but but the main job of a prophet was to proclaim and call people to respond appropriately to what had already been revealed. And so we are to do the same, to tell others about the grace that comes through Jesus Christ and even to warn them of what is to come. Nancy Guthrie, in her book, wrote this, and we'll close. What to do, brothers and sisters? And you've heard me say before, this has nothing to do with what you do for a living. It has to do with what you live for. What you do for a living is going to be different here, there, and as many different people in this room will be different for what you do for a living, if you will. But what are you and I to be living for? I think, I think the scriptures would say we, we are to live for the glory of God, the welfare of his church, and reaching people with the gospel. Others would say it to know Christ and to make him known. And that's Richard at Dallas Seminary. To make God look good and to make Christ well known. What to do, Nancy Guthrie? If you are in Christ, you have a calling, a purpose, and a reason to keep getting up in the morning in a dark world. We have good news to share with people who have no hope of escaping the grip of the deception of the devil and the false promises of the world apart from the power of the gospel. You and I have a message of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
that changes people's lives. Not only now, but for all time. Let's pray and let's sing. Father in heaven, so many of us this month are praying for friends, for neighbors, co-workers and the like who we believe don't know Christ and some of us are fasting as you are leading us and we're seeking to reach out and serve and the like and even share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. met with a brother just this week who said it's, it's just been a good thing to be reminded again to live in such a way. And indeed it is. Lord, would you maybe use this word from Revelation 10 to stir us up, to revive us, your people, about what we are to be about. I think of those early disciples of Christ. He was risen from the dead and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And they said to him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time for the restoration of all things? And yet they and we are reminded, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, Lord, he rose, ascended, and they looked on and an angel appeared and said, why are you looking into the sky like that? He's going to come again. And so what are we to be about until he comes? Empowered by the Spirit, witnessing to the gospel of Jesus. May it be more and more so of your people here at Redeemer, all across our city and around the world. God, might you revive us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name.